пам'ятати. Було багато загроз свободі наших людей і самому існуванню українців, але народ пройшов через це. І зараз ми з вами маємо історичну можливість раз і назавжди захистити українську волю. Я вірю, що так і буде. 90 years ago this month, Ukrainians were subject to a genocidal terror famine known as the Holodomor. As many as 10 million Ukrainians perished from starvation as a result of Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin's campaign of forcefully requisitioning grain in an effort to collectivize agriculture, subjugate Ukraine, and crush its independence movement. And with Russia currently waging what many consider to be a genocidal war against Ukraine, this month's Holodomor anniversary is taking on an added significance. How does a Kremlin campaign of genocide in 1932 help us better understand Russia's genocidal aggression in Ukraine in 2022? Well, stick around because I got just the two guests to help us unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Michael Sawaku. Executive Vice President and Director of the Ukrainian National Information Service and Vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America and President of the U.S. Holodomor Committee. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you, Brian. And also joining us from Toronto, Canada, somebody I've long wanted to get on the program, Marta Bazuk, is Executive Director of the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium. Welcome to The Vertical, Marta. It's good to see you after all these years. Thank you. And Toronto didn't get a mention as being funky or hip. Toronto is funky and hip and wonderful, and and, 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 we, and we love it dearly. <laughs> but I'll, I'll think of a superlative in the, in, in the billboard. Um, to get us started, though, I, I wanted to have both of you explain um, what your respective organizations are doing in both the U.S. and Canada to mark the Holodomor anniversary, to mark the 90th anniversary of the Holodomor, and what you hope to accomplish out of this consciousness raising. Michael, Michael, I, I, I know you just wrapped up the Ukraine Day's advocacy events uh, in, in the U.S. Congress. They were highly successful, and now you're moving ahead with Holodomor commemorations. What do you have planned, and what do you hope to, to accomplish? Well, uh, once again, thank you, Brian, for this opportunity to be on your podcast. Uh, was a successful one back in the summer. Looking forward to um, a, a worthwhile conversation uh, regarding the whole Demar. You know, Brian, it's a it's a it's a loaded question in terms of what we anticipate for whole Demar. Right now, we are in what I call commemorative mode, and our organization, the U.S. Whole Demar Committee has chosen to commemorate the 90th anniversary from November of this year to November of next year. So it'll be an entire year of commemorative efforts. And we basically were beginning with our uh, theme. Our theme for the for the 90th anniversary is as follows. Holodomor then, genocide now, and justice when. Meaning 90 years ago, you had a Holodomor and the world was silent at that particular time. You have a gen genocide which is happening right now, uh, especially in the past nine months uh, of Russian's full-scale invasion, plus the past eight years of Russian invasion of Ukraine. But where is the justice? Where is the justice coming for the, 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 the current genocide? Um, and where is the justice when it comes to the whole Demar 90 years ago? Now, I say 
justice of Holdemore 90 years ago, it, it, it's hard to bring any of those um, uh, particular uh, individuals to trial now because most obviously, if not all, are dead. However, there's historical justice associated with this, and the historical justice goes to the actual designation and recognition of Holdemort as genocide. So that's one of the main things that we in the United States are doing right now is we have a full, full core press when it comes to advocacy with the White House and the State Department to recognize Holdemort as, as genocide. Another actual full core press is to revoke Walter Durante's Pulitzer Prize from 1932. Um, I think that that is 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 remarkable that that's uh, not happened yet. It's not. It's it's remarkable that it hasn't happened yet. There there's precedent out there as to other Pulitzer prizes that have been revoked um, for for bad court for uh, bad journalism and so forth. We've taken this on. We've taken this mantle on since 2008 when it was the the commemoration of the 75th anniversary. The New York Times, the Pulitzer Committee comes back with their pro-diplomatic type of response to say it wasn't us, we can't, we, we can't necessarily relitigate history and so forth and so on. But obviously there are precedents. And I think that we're one of the, the pressing issues right now for us is to make sure that we try to revoke uh, Walter Durante's Pulitzer Prize. States uh, of the 50 states in the United States, where I think we're up to about 25 that have already recognized Holdemort's genocide, we need to press forward. We need to press forward and make sure that the remaining 25 states um, do the same type of recognition. Interestingly enough, I was at an event with Speaker Pelosi last week. And Speaker Pelosi had mentioned in her speech that 49 out of 50 states have recognized uh, the Armenian tragedy of 1914-15 as genocide. So we need a little bit of catch-up here to do with uh, with the Armenians. Um, there, there are um, instances that we're doing in this entire year of reaching out to universities, possibly even to your university, Brian, yep, uh, that. that have that have that have genocide centers. A lot of them have genocide centers associated with their history departments or political science departments. Um, and to have at least some type of course or some type of lectures um, dealing with the whole demand. So we're taking this on a political level. We're taking this on a scholarly level. We're also taking this on, on uh, um, uh, in the arts as well. We're trying to promote as much as possible Holdemort in the arts. There are many exhibits uh, regarding the Holdemort. We're trying to uh, put them in, in various venues throughout the United States, in major museums, uh, major, uh, major types of venues to promote Holdemort knowledge, not necessarily, again, in a political and or educational way, but at least in a way such as through the arts. And one of the great ways is promotion of uh, Andrea Hupa's film, Mr. Jones. Uh, my organization was one of the first ones to sponsor um, um, that particular film. We're very proud that it came out um, in early 2020. Unfortunately, it came out at the time of COVID. Um, so it's on Netflix right now. But the promotion of that film and the, uh, and the acclaim that it's received by, by journalists, by correspondents, um, by the media alike has been just phenomenal. And it's a great way of promoting Hold the Mud without necessarily having um, a history lesson. But when it does come to history lessons, one of the things um, that is essential and key here in the United States is the promotion of Holdemort in high school curriculum, um, in public high school curriculum. I think that that is the only way that you're going to defeat any naysayers when it comes to, to denying of the Holdemort in the future for those students to actually have courses or have some type of lectures about the Holdemort. We do this in many ways. We reach out to individual school boards. 
um, and have individuals and have teachers come in to to uh, to give lectures about the Holodomor, or frankly speaking, we do it the political routes and we mandate it state by state um, that the mandating of Holodomor has to be part of your genocide curriculum um, studies within public high schools. We've been very su su successful in several states already, Michigan, Illinois, most recently in Massachusetts of last year, even during a COVID year. And now this particular um, um, uh, school year, they're already talking about the Holodomor and, and lectures are, are being given about the Holodomor. There is a Holodomor student competition for high school students that we're promoting this year, again, during the 90th anniversary. And we're going to culminate with a Holodomor forum. A Holodomor forum, Brian, you were uh, the participant in our inaugural Holodomor forum in Philadelphia, Philadelphia in October yeah. of 2019. Um, we will culminate the 90th anniversary commemorative year with the Holodomor Forum um, in Washington, D.C., the first weekend in November of 2023. That will be a, uh, a, um, a conference that will deal with uh, exhibits, that will deal with um, a commemorative uh, uh, memorial service as well, and obviously activities surrounding the uh, Holodomor Memorial in Washington, D.C. So we have a plethora of, of issues that we like to promote for the 90th anniversary. One of the things I'd like to say is, is uh, again, and thanks to you and gratitude to you to bring this topic to the attention of, of your listeners. But a lot of people already know about the Holodomor. It's not a matter of educating and, and telling a lot about the historical aspect of the Holodomor. Now we just have to bring it into the into mainstream. Why it is important to understand something that happened 90 years ago, because frankly speaking, like our theme said, it's repeating itself right now. Yeah, and uh, we're going to definitely return. Well, Michael, you've given us a lot to unpack here. Um, and I mean, we could, we could, we Americans can learn a lot from our wonderful neighbors north of the border about how to promote Ukrainian studies. And I was, I want to bring Marta into the discussion. Marta, I understand. I, I was looking at your website that the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium recently hosted its annual famine lecture that focused on understanding Russia's war on Ukraine through the Holodomor. Um, which looked like a fascinating lecture. I, I, I wish I, I had been able to see it. What else do you have planned going forward for the anniversary? And what do you what do you what do you what do you have to accomplish? I know Canada's way ahead of the U.S. on this. Well, first, I'd like to say thanks so much for having me, Brian. Yes, we just had the annual Holodomor lecture, and that's something we do every year. And it's gone on for 25 years now. The first lecturer was James Mace. Anyone who is interested in famine studies knows he is really the grandfather, godfather, initiator of the academic study of the whole of the more. So we've been doing this, it's, you know, day in and day out for 10 years. Um, so we will continue to do what we always do. And I urge people, thank you for mentioning the website. It's very easy to remember, holodomore.ca. You can see that we um, have had conferences nearly every year. Every year we try to uh, engage a new audience that might not have yet considered the relevance of the Holodomor for their area of studies. So that might be a conference on communism and hunger that uh, shows stu uh, students of China why they should know more about the Holodomor. It might be on famine studies. So the Irish scholars should know more about the Holodomor. Famine as a political tool, engaging scholars from Africa. Uh, there are health ramifications. Uh, there's a, someone who studies the incidence of diabetes in subsequent generations where there have been famines. Uh, oral history. Anyway, we're always trying to show that the Holodomor has relevance 
um, to fields where it might not yet have been integrated. So we continue to do that, research grants, uh, our annual famine lecture. But in addition, the, the big news for this year for us is we've received funding to begin developing a massive open online course. So that's an online wow. course that will be offered on the whole of the more. It will be offered for credit through the University of Alberta on the very popular platform Coursera, but it will also be available to anyone anywhere in the world if, if the credit doesn't matter to them and mm -hmm. then they can take it for free. So we're at the beginning stages of that, um, but that's an exciting development. We also will be able to have some funds to promote the existence of the MOOC and that's massive open online courses called a MOOC and uh, whole of the more efforts more generally. And I think that's interesting because you look at something like there is a course offered to University of Alberta called Indigenous Canada. Uh, indigenous issues, of course, very important in Canada. And last year, there were discoveries of graves on sites where residential schools exist. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of interest in this whole, the history of the indigenous community in, in Canada. And an actor, you might know the show, popular show Schitt's Creek, Dan Levy, uh, an actor from that show, tweeted, I'm going to take the course Indigenous Canada. Uh, please, why don't you join me? The fact of a celebrity tweeting about a course mm -hmm. itself, if you do a Google, there are, there are pages of hits about Dan Levy tweeting about the Indigenous Canada course. So we hope we'll be able to create some mm -hmm. buzz, get some people to be tweeting. You know, I'd like to know more, more about Ukra Ukrainian history. I'm going to take the whole of the more and famine and genocide. Join me and see if we can't get, you know, a considerable public out there taking this course. Well, keep me posted on that. I'm, I'm not a celebrity, but I certainly will tweet it as long as <laughs> as long as our ability to tweet remains. And that, that, that is that's that's in question. Marta, I like the way you say like to broaden this out to make the the holiday more relevant to other non-Ukrainian communities. And Michael, you remember if, if you remember correctly, when I spoke uh, in Philadelphia back in 2019, I was trying to make this point, this the need to universalize this. And the the example I used was this was a a, the use of a genocide that unnaturally separated Ukraine from its normal, its rightful home in Europe. And I made the parallel with the Baltic expulsions um, at the start of the Second World War. Now, that wasn't a genocide, but it was certainly ethnic cleansing. Um, and how effective the Baltic states have been at kind of promoting the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the Baltic Way and all of this, this is really this really raised a lot of consciousness, right? Um, and it, and it, it, it um, kind of helped embed the Baltic states in Europe in a lot of ways by telling this story. Are there any attempts to kind of tell the, the Holodomor story that way now? Because this is kind of how I see it. I, this was the use of a, of a series of war crimes in, to, to separate Ukraine from Europe, just like the Baltic states were artificially separated from Europe. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that, Michael or Marta? You know, uh, yeah, yes, of course, Brian. And and again, grateful for your address and, and, and for your speech to the inaugural Hodemore Forum in Philadelphia in October of 2019. I, I I remember um, your address vividly, and 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 basically, as you said, you, we we need to tell the story. We, as Ukrainians, who who right now are 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 suffering. Well, this was before the war, but right now, in particular, are suffering through a war. We need to make sure that the story is out there and the story is not forgotten. And 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 one of the ways, as well, almost something to what Martha had said, is that kind of um, 
reaching outside of the periphery of the of, of the grander Ukrainian community or Ukrainian diasporas. Um, we, mm -hmm. We've actually put together something called uh, a documentary called When We Starve. So we put this documentary called When You Starve, and, and it's not a historical lesson about the Holodomor. It's not the political ramifications about the Holodomor, but it's storytelling about the Holodomor, meaning what it what happens to an average individual, to the to, to the average person when they go through starvation. And it's not that simple to say it's just a statistic that there are between seven and 10 million Ukrainians that died between 1932-33. There's a story associated with each individual mm -hmm. in terms of the psychological aspects that you go through, in terms of the physical um, and physiological aspects that a body goes through when it starves. And I think that's a great way of promoting the whole Demar without it necessarily being a quote-unquote political issue. For people to understand that this is something that, unfortunately, right now, food is still being used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. It was used as a weapon 90 years ago in Ukraine. Uh, uh, Litvinov, at that particular time, as they were exporting Ukrainian grain onto Western markets, had said that food is being used as a weapon. Well, food is being used right now, 90 years later, in almost the same way, except this time it, the Russians are not letting that grain or that seed be exported from Ukraine. So all of this um, is, 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 is an opportunity to tell this story, to tell a story of 90 years ago, what happens to those individuals when they starve, and unfortunately, 90 years later, what happens to these individuals that are waiting for that Ukrainian grain, are waiting for that Ukrainian seed, and how they are being affected by it as well? Right. And most of them, of course, are in the global south. And in the global south is where we have a lot of work to do in, in garnering support for Ukraine at the moment, which is which is ironic. Marta, do you want to add something here? Yeah, and I, it, it's, I know this is an issue that, that you bring up um, not infrequently, and, and Michael alluded to this. It's interesting, this question of you know, there was a time the Holodomor would be described as the secret genocide, the unknown genocide. But the scholars that we work with that are publishing, it's interesting how much was really out there and how much this sort of myth that it wasn't known is really the effect of disinformation, that there was enough confusion sown at the time that it left many people sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, I guess we'll never know the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, the Soviets denied and denied, denied at the time of the famine. They refused international food aid from the Red Cross. And uh, for 50, till the demise of the Soviet Union, their position was that people hadn't starved. And despite the fact that there were not, not, there were not, a tiny number, but there were survivors. There were people who managed to get out and tell the truth, but they were often dismissed, you know, disgruntled emigres. And uh, but there, there were brave journalists. There's, uh, and these are the kind of stories that I think still have resonance today. There is a Canadian journalist named Ria Kleiman. You would not know she had existed unless now you can do a Google search and find material about her. But she wrote for a defunct newspaper. You it took someone being in a dusty archive looking at microfiche to looking for information about what were the Canadians writing about international grain trade to, to realize that this woman had been writing about starvation in Ukraine in 32, 33. Mm -hmm. So stories of individuals 
like this brave journalist, one of only a couple, Gareth Jones, Rhea Kleiman, uh, it's really a handful. Stories about the victims themselves were still transcribing you know, video to make it available in English of, interview, of interviews with survivors. Those make uh, events more accessible to people. But I just wanted to echo, Michael said the, the parallels with today. Disinformation worked effectively. It doesn't work quite as effectively today where people have cell phones, they post videos of what happens, but there's still an attempt to- Muddy uh, the waters. Demon and, and de well, how do they do that? Demonize the victims. Zelensky, Jewish president, is a Nazi. You know, the, the kind of things that are said to, to sow doubt in people's mind. And in, it, it doesn't have to be accepted as true to leave enough doubt that people don't take action. You know, in this case, it might be that Ukraine not get arms. Uh, that's sort of the, the, the impact of disinformation. And it, it's a, a tactic that that unfortunately works that we have to really fight against yeah no, you know, it's, so Brian, it's, if, you're, if you don't yeah. mind I, i'd like to pick up on that as well this disinformation campaign we, we we we've known for for years already on on how russia uh, uh how russia operates and whether it was in soviet times whether it was specifically during the whole of the war or whether it's it's modern russian times today I, I, I'm I'm taken back to a movie of of 2017 called uh, Bitter Harvest. It was produced mm -hmm. um, um, by uh, by a Ukrainian Canadian, and one of the most poignant phrases in that movie, as the main character was going um, um, growing up in the Soviet in Soviet Ukraine at that particular time, um, not knowing so much about the whole Demar until it affects his 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 family back in the village. When he was in a major city, he was going through uh, some type of, of, of classes, and, and his professor had said, reality is the enemy. And that's exactly what we're doing with as, as, as the way that the Russians perform their disinformation operatives right now. Reality is the enemy. We had mentioned um, about food as a weapon, and then the global south right now, unfortunately, is suffering because Ukraine is not being able to export the necessary grain. But there's the reality right there is that, that the global south is not getting their, their requested grain and needed grain. But at the same time, um, the enemy is, is Russian disinformation, which is very prevalent in the global south. So you have a, a, a bit of a paradox here is that the global south relies on that Ukrainian wheat today. And yet at the same time, they're, they're, they're taken aback or they're, they're, they're taken um, to a different level when it comes to Russian Russian disinformation about why the grain is not being delivered to them. Right. So that's that that in a sense is reality is the enemy, and we must confront that at every single instance that we can. No, you, you you're right, and the the one of the reasons here, of course, is they need the Ukrainian grain, but they also need the Russian gas, and that's a that's a that's a problem that keeps them hooked in. It is just hard to believe after, I mean, what, Harvest of Sorrow was published in, what, 86? Uh, for me, that was the book that kind of popularized the Holodomor for, for at least North American and European audiences, um, and it, it came out in 86. Uh, that was a long time ago. Um, and the fact that there could possibly be any deniers now is, is just remarkable. I wanted to dive a little bit into, before we move into the second half and talk about the um, the relevance today. In the, uh, I wanted to dive into this effort to get the Holodomor recognized as a genocide. I, I actually looked this up. There's only 15 countries, including Ukraine, 
that have actually recognized it. Australia, Canada, Colombia, Ecuador, Estonia, Georgia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Mexico, Paraguay, Peru, Poland, Ukraine, and the Vatican. And I wanted to name them all because they're doing the right thing. Um, it's also note noteworthy that um, one, two, three, four, five of those 15 are former Soviet republics. Um, and, um, and, and, um, I was just wondering where the progress is on securing U.S. recognition, Michael. We see that 25 states have done it at the state level, but that, that doesn't really pack the punch of a national recognition. What are the roadblocks here? What can we learn from our neighbors to the north, um, other than having a larger percentage of Ukrainians as a, as a, as a portion of our population? Yeah, it's a matter. It's a matter of learning from our neighbors to the north, but it's also um, an opportunity to learn from our various um, ethnic diverse um, groups in the United States. For example, the Armenians, much like the Ukrainians, have always been advocating for recognition of uh, their genocide as well, by officially by the United States government. That came, as a matter of fact, in President Biden's uh, first four months of office in April of 2021, mm -hmm. where he officially recognized the Armenian tragedy of 1914-15 as a genocide. And they they went through all the loopholes um, uh, um, as much as we have, and, and we are doing right now. We have Senate and House um, representative um, uh, resolutions that were enacted in 2018, recognizing Holdemort as genocide. On the on the actual aspect of the 1998 or excuse me 1988 Ukraine Famine Commission findings, where the Ukraine Famine Commission findings, which were done between 1986 and 1988, actually came out with their ten findings, and the last finding said that we believe, and Dr. James Mace was was the the the, the chair of that particular commission, we believe that Stalin and those around him, meaning his henchmen, committed genocide against the Ukrainian people. So the information is out there. It's just a matter, as I call it, it's just a matter of political will. And I understand right now that that uh, the United States and and Russia do not have the greatest and and uh, of diplomatic relations. But think about the diplomatic relations between the United States and Turkey back in April of 2021, when the United States did recognize mm -hmm. the Armenian genocide. We are back to those same type of diplomatic relations as had existed um, uh, no more than a, a year and a half ago. Whether the, um, the, the, the Turkish ambassador was recalled for a week or two, the same thing might happen here, but also it needs to have that historical right. justice because yeah. We will only be repeating these types of, of manifests in the future if we don't recognize where we came from in the past. No, I would agree with you on that. And I actually think the Armenian one is a little harder to get done because the Turks are a NATO ally. I mean, they're a problematic NATO ally, but they're a NATO ally nonetheless. And damaging relations with Ankara is is, is something that Washington always tries to avoid. Um, and they did that. That was hard. Now, damaging relations with Russia? Well, there's not much more we could do. They, they can't get much more damage than they are. And quite frankly, I'm not really that concerned with the Russians' feelings about this right now. It's 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 time we told the truth. Marta, you Canada long ago recognized the uh, the Holodomor as a genocide. What what advice would you give to us Americans to get this done up here, down here? I, I wanted to pick up on one thing you said. It, it, if if Russia had developed differently, Russia could have at the time that the Soviet Union fell apart, disavowed the Soviet past, we could be talking about this as a Soviet 
uh, mm -hmm. per perpetrator, they could be saying absolutely there was a whole of the more. And in fact, there was a little window of time where they did. Mm -hmm. They did not have to sort of take on the mantle of the Soviet Union as, as one and the same as their own heritage. But that's the direction that they went. So it's interesting that, you know, it could it have been different? It, it, maybe it could have. Um, I would just urge people, you know, I work for an academic research organization that has educational initiatives as well. So we're not active lobbyists, but we serve as a resource, as an authoritative source of information that people can use to go to their elected representatives to say, look, we're not making this up. I'm not just some biased member of an ethnic community. This has been proven. This is a fact. This, mm -hmm. Here's the information. So we hope people will use our resources that way. No, and I'm certainly going in the show notes. I'm going to share links to 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 the consortium as well as all of Michael's organizations. I try to to, to if our readers want to reach out and help somehow, they can. Our listeners want to reach out and help somehow, they 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 can. So I'm going to do that. One last thing before we go into the second half, where I really want to discuss the parallels with today, um, is this something, Michael? This is something you and I have talked about a lot. Uh, the yawning gap between uh, Ukrainian studies between Canada and the US. Um, it's, it's, it's something here in the US, Ukrainian studies have kind of gotten subsumed into this larger rubric of Slavic studies or Russian studies, and it's seen as kind of an afterthought, with some notable exceptions, of course, Harvard being a notable exception. Um, uh, but, you know, if, I, if I'm advising students who want to do Ukrainian studies, I tell them to go to Canada. You know, I tell them to go to, go, go to the University of Toronto. Um, how do we close this gap? I know it's something you're kind of thinking about and working on, Michael. It's something we, you and I have talked about doing going forward. But how, how would I, for, for, for both of you who are on kind of different sides of this gap, how do you, how could we close this gap in the U.S.? You know, this is, this is obviously an open-ended question as, as we, we, we try to deal with this and, and deal with this in a productive way. Um, looking at our uh, neighbors to the north, They've done, done a tremendous job. It's a tremendous job in terms of bringing the wherewithal, bringing the expertise to, to said university. And I think that that's what, um, uh, that's what we have to concentrate on here is I'm sure that universities would be most willing um, to have a Ukrainian studies or some type of courses on Ukrainian studies within their greater Slavic slash Russian slash Eurasian. Though that too has to change. That mentality, I think, has to change as well, even in terms of that Eurasian um, studies type you know, program. I think of Ukrainian history as part of European history. And actually, it has to be part of as European. the great Timothy Correct. Snyder said, European history doesn't make any sense Correct. unless you include Correct. Ukraine. Correct. Correct. And I was just about to mention, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, Professor Snyder, because <laughs> Timothy Snyder at Yale University is a prime example of what can happen mm -hmm. um, here in the United States. He's part of European history, whereas Ukraine is part of Europe, and therefore, um, to extend all that knowledge about Ukrainian history as part and parcel of European history. Um, this is, I, I think it's just a matter of, of getting to a lot of these universities promoting this as much as possible. We're doing it a little more narrow focused right now when it comes to the genocide studies programs. And there are several um, uh, key genocide studies programs throughout the United States. And if we can try and at least get our foot within the door of those particular programs, I think it opens up a greater realm for, for a greater uh, Ukrainian studies program. Any thoughts on this topic, Marta? 
Absolutely. Uh, there was just a major conference in the field of Slavic studies held in Chicago, uh, ASSES, and the conversations both in the conference rooms and in the corridors, people, major conversations are going on because of the war about how do we decolonialize right. Soviet history, Russian history, the exactly. teaching of Russian imperial history, this focus on the center that forgets the periphery, that marginalizes the scholars who look at history, not from a Moscow-centric position. So I think the field of Soviet studies, Russian studies, Russian imperial historians, I think they're all doing some introspection right now. Uh, I think, I know, for example, my husband's an academic, he teaches in the Slavic department at University of Toronto. And, you know, they're talking about how do you decolonize even the teaching of language? Mm -hmm. What are the examples you use? How, and uh, I think the honest scholars are looking at things differently right now than they did even a few years ago. And I'm obligated to say, Marta, both you and another Marta, our common friend, Marta Duchok, were instrumental in my own intellectual journey on this. If you remember when we met in the early 90s in Kiev, uh, I was coming at this from a very, very Russo-centric perspective because that's how I was educated. Um, and it took living in Ukraine and having great, uh, you know, impromptu teachers like you and the in, in, in Martin Dechok to kind of uh, lead me to their to, to to the right place. And I think that's um, it's almost something we can maybe do writ large because I think I'll this just, is yeah. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, yeah, Ukrainian studies has sometimes been caught in a very difficult situation where there was an old guard of scholars in Russian history who were brought up in the Russian imperial tradition. Yep. And so they had this Russian conservative view of Ukraine as a, uh, an appendage, mm -hmm. a periphery. And then you had Soviet studies that also looked at mm -hmm. Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Ukrainianness as an aberration, as kind of an inconvenient uh, inconvenience within the, the development of the Soviet Union, this, this independence movement that doesn't really make sense for them. So both from the right and the left, Ukraine didn't have an easy time ukrainianists didn't have an easy time yeah no and you put you this put this point of this russian imperial history i mean this basically was imported to the west after the bolshevik revolution when the white russians scholars emigrated to the west and brought with them this imperial russian version of history which is pretty much the same version of russian history that was taught in the soviet times just with different names on you know different different labels on things and this is what we all got this is what we all got. And I can't, I'll never forget when I was first studying Russian history uh, with quotes around it, actually, I never could understand how Russia jumped from Kiev to Moscow and just how that magically happened. And I thought I wasn't studying hard enough. And it turns out, no, I was studying hard enough. I just, uh, it, it didn't happen. Um, well, that no, I, this is something I think is, it's an important issue going forward and I wanted to discuss it. And that's a great way to segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the parallels between 1932 in 1922 and what they teach us. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Michael Sawicki, Executive Vice President and Director of the Ukrainian National Information Service, Vice President of the 
Ukrainian Congress Committee of America and president of the U.S. Alador Committee. And joining us from the lovely Canadian city of Toronto is my old friend Marta Bazuk, executive director of the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power Podcast Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter, at least for now, at Power Vertical. цю зиму і не дати Росії перетворити холод на знаряддя терору і підкорення. Ми потребуємо багатьох речей. Від генераторів різної потужності до старлінків. Для нас це не просто питання про техніку. Для України це захист від терору. Так само як So back in April, Russia effectively said the quiet part out loud. When the state-run press agency RIA Novosti published what Yale University historian Timothy Snyder described as a, quote, genocide handbook and, a, and quote, an explicit program for the complete elimination of the Ukrainian nation as such. Effectively, the article, which was widely circulated, describes any Ukrainian who refuses to be subjugated to Russia as a Nazi and calls for denazification. So I guess today Nazis are the new kulaks to draw the parallel between the Holodomor and today. Meanwhile, war crimes prosecutors are now busy investigating the Russian leadership for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And the Ria Novosti article has been described as proof of motive for the latter. Uh, Marta, how does looking at today's war through the lens of the Holodomor help us to better understand what's happening? How does how can this how can we make this history relevant today? I mean, there are some pretty obvious ways, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. One of the the things that is interesting to me, I see scholars of genocide looking at today's events, and they have no problem finding genocidal intent mm-hmm. uh, and calling the actions of the Russian forces genocidal. And it's interesting to me that it's been easier to get those discussions going about today's events than it and sometimes has been about the whole of the more. Uh, I think part of that is is how graphic we see what's happening and the violence of, of missiles and bombs and people slowly starving as a, as a different kind of event. Mm-hmm. There's literally not the smoking gun the way there is with right. the launch of a missile. I, I'm not, I don't think that answers your question, but it's what prompt, it, it prompted the thought yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, I, a couple of months back, I had three former war crimes prosecutors on this program, and all three of them who have actually prosecuted genocide um, said that their case for genocide is very, very easy to make here, and I think we're going to probably see that coming down. M- Michael, what are your thoughts on uh, understanding today's war through the lens of the Holodomor? How does this, I know you've got a bunch of events planned on this, so I know you've got a lot to say about this. Yeah, this is the you know just just looking at the the, the simple definition of, of of genocide. Whether you go to Webster's, whether you go to the UN Genocide Convention, um, there there there's actually a website out there that that describes the ten stages of genocide as well, and and to to quickly run through them: classification, symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, 
um, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution, extermination, and last is denial. Everything, all 10 of those particular stages are being manifest right now in Ukraine for the past nine months. Frankly speaking, they've been manifest in Ukraine for the past eight years. And frankly speaking, they've been manifest during Soviet times. And frankly speaking, even during Russian imperial times. This is just the mindset that we're dealing with. And I think that's what is, is most relevant today, is understanding what is happening in Moscow is not so much is is um, it is the intent to destroy the Ukrainian people, but it's also I'm I'm going to come up with another term right now. It's the re-imperialization of yeah. of the Russian Empire, and and we don't speak about that often enough. And I think that that needs to come out in the brutal discourse, whether in Washington, whether in Ottawa, whether in Brussels, wherever that it is, about the intent of the Russians right now. It's their intent. Th- to obviously subjugate Ukraine, but through that subjugation is to to uh, re-imperialize um, uh, uh, Russia in its grand grandiose worldview, and that we need to be. If we're not mindful of that, we're doomed to repeat any type of mistakes that we made in the past in the future. The the assistance to Ukraine right now is absolutely critical to make sure that that re-imperialization doesn't happen. I, I look at, at Ukraine's neighboring countries of the Baltics, Ukraine's neighboring countries of Poland. They know 100 um, percent, hands down, what Russian uh, imperialization means. And if this is the first of, of uh, the instance of trying to re-imperialize um, the Kremlin, the Russian Federation, the Russian Empire, um, if it's not stopped in Ukraine, with a, a handed defeat of the Russians in Ukraine, um, there were in for for tougher times uh, as a world democracy and in particular as the United States as a steward of those democracies. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm glad you I want to just to pick up on that, Michael. I mean, this it's no act. This is 2022. The Soviet Union was founded in 1922. This is a this is a point I make a lot. I harp on this a lot for a reason. I just think, I mean, Putin, from studying him my whole adult life, he is very conscious of symbolism and anniversary. He's very, very conscious. And I think that this was a contributing factor to why we're seeing what we're seeing this year. I thought he wanted to put Humpty Dumpty back together again at the centenary of, of its of its founding. He already pretty much had Belarus before he invaded Ukraine. Um, and if, if he were successful in Ukraine, I think this is going to be the, the first of a series of kind of wars to restore the empire. But conversely, if he's defeated in Ukraine, which I think he's going to be, um, then this is going to open up a window of opportunity across the former Soviet space. I can even envision a free Belarus in the event of a Ukrainian victory. So I think this is, could really create a 1989 moment. Uh, any additional thoughts on this topic, Marta? About the com- the connection between today's events and the whole of the more. When you think about, you know, we've been thinking about the 90th anniversary year for some time, how it should be commemorated. We never would have thought before this February that we, in this coming fall 2023 and the, the culmination of the 90th year whole of the more commemorations, that we would at the same time be grieving the deaths of mm-hmm. a whole new generation of soldiers. But what we would have thought would have been the situation is after 90 years, we're no longer grieving, we're, we're remembering, we're remembering the dignity of every individual that the perpetrators tried to erase the memory of. But instead of being able to do that, to recall these people, the, the dignity of the individual, 
we are actually again thrown back to a position of, of grieving, of calling the world to know right now about what's happening and trying to stop it from happening. I mean, Ukrainians at the time of the Holodomor uh, in the diaspora were trying to bring the world's attention to the League of Nations. They brought it to the very highest levels. They did everything they possibly could and uh, they, they couldn't stop it at the time. And Ukrainians now are much more effective. They have a voice, they know the languages of the countries they live in and they're using all the possible leverage they have to make sure that Ukraine gets the weapons it needs, not only to stop um, Putin for Ukraine's sake, but for the sake of the international world order for world safety. It, if that doesn't happen, you know, the world doesn't arm Ukraine at its own risk. Yeah, no, I, I would I would wholeheartedly endorse this. I mean, the peril I see is, as I indicated earlier, these were two attempts to keep Ukraine out of Europe. Now, remember, Ukraine was incorporated into the Soviet Union in 22, but it wasn't really fully, fully subjugated. There was a strong independence movement um, until 1932, until the Holodomor. That was the that was the decisive moment when Ukraine was completely subjugated. And we're seeing an attempt at the sim something similar now through this well, war. And, and, and there's always a denial that there's anything authentic about Ukrainian identity. Yeah. I mean, Putin himself, he says that, uh, you know, Lenin and, and the Soviets created... Well, you know, and you think in the 1920s in the Soviet Union, they had po policies of indigenization and Ukraine, it was Ukrainianization. We know the Bolsheviks, they didn't that, do that to be nice guys. They did it because they had to have concessions to the Ukrainians in Ukraine and in other places right. to those people indigenous to those places. They, they gave concessions because they didn't have support and they needed support. So Ukrainianization that, you know, Putin sees as evidence that Lenin created Ukraine, I guess, I, that was a that's evidence of the strength of Ukrainian identity in the 1920s. And by 1933, it had gone too far for the likes of Stalin. And, and we know the result. The, the Holodomor was really what put a, I know, which what squashed Ukrainian expressions of um, uh, independence for for generations. No, it's it, it all one. Ha I actually did the math on this, like who has ruled Ukraine since the breakup of Kievan Rus, who has ruled Ukraine. And Ukraine's been in Europe for most of its history. For 500 yeah. years, it was part of either the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. I mean, it was it was part of it was part of Europe. Um, and then you have, you know, 30, 30 some odd years of independence, if you count both periods, um, and then a couple hundred years um, under un, under Russian rule. So this notion that Ukraine has always been Russia is a myth. I, I just gave a lecture at UTA called Separated at Birth, Why Post-Soviets in Russia and Ukraine are, are, are different, which, 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 which makes this point. Um, we're bumping up towards the end, but Michael, I know there's a lot of kind of things you got on your wish list for legislation that we'd like to, that you'd like to get out of the United States Congress going forward. Um, you would definitely like to get Russia designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, you would like to get the current war designated as a genocide. Um, I know you want to see war crimes prosecutions, and I think they're coming. And then finally, the issue of war reparations. Um, we got this $300 billion in seized Russian funds. It just so happens to be about the estimated amount uh, that's going to be necessary to rebuild Ukraine. I just want to get your thoughts on some of these things you would like to see happen and, and, and your ch the chances you think of them actually happening. 
Um, all, all of the above, but one of the <laughs> the main factors, the main factors uh, is from the administration, which just recently announced their supplemental request for Ukraine um, in the new appropriations bill, hopefully coming up uh, before Congress leaves session in, in um, so about 40 December, billion, right? Is about the 40 billion, 37.7 billion, as a matter of fact. So having that um, in terms of the security assistance for Ukraine, absolutely necessary. What we had just talked about, Ukraine has to defeat um, Russia in its territory, um, um, get them out of Ukraine's territory to 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 be not just a symbolic gesture, but obviously to show that democracy um, can definitely um, uh, supersede when it comes to authoritarianism here. State sponsor of terrorism, obviously uh, uh, another big uh, to do on our wish list. Again, much like the recognition of the Holodomor's genocide, this is a matter of political will. And it's a matter of political will if you think about the four countries that are currently on United States' list of designated countries as state sponsor of terrorism. You have Cuba, you have Syria, you have Iran, and you have North Korea. Granted, all four of them are, are, are part of almost what uh, George Bush had said during his, George W. Bush said during his tenure, access of evil. You put Havana in there, definitely access of evil. But those four countries don't have an iota compared to what the Russian Federation right. has been doing in terms of its terrorism, not just in Ukraine in the past nine months or eight years, but obviously what they do worldwide, what they do with the Iranians, what they do with the Syrians, what they do in, in, in the global south with the Wagner group and so forth. So it, it, it seems to be quite evident um, that Russia is a state sponsor of terror, but it's a matter of that political will, because with that political will also comes not just a political designation, but there are secondary economic yep. sanctions that come as part of that um, right. designation. And talking about that $300 billion that you had mentioned in terms of reparations, in terms of, of the freezing, the seizing of Russian assets, um, that too would, would, would actually add to bringing down um, Russia right now and its economy and having that everyday Russian feel the effect of the war in right. Ukraine. Not just the Ukrainians, unfortunately, which I just um, read his statistics that as many as 40,000 civilians have been killed yep. um, in Ukraine in the past nine months. So that average Russian citizen doesn't necessarily feel that or obviously doesn't necessarily know that. But until those um, economic sanctions really hit that common Russian uh, uh, citizen, this is the thing to do to bring to to stop this war as quickly as possible. Listen, President Biden had mentioned um, uh, in chopper talk, as they say, a question, an inquiry that was passed to him as he was going on to uh, onto the helicopter. Do you um, believe that the current war in Ukraine is a genocide? In April of 2022, he said one word answer. Yes. Yes. So yep. we need to rest. We need to designate this as uh, the current war is a genocide which gives ample opportunity to recognize Holodomor as a genocide, get those war crimes, get the historical justice of the genocide now, the historical justice of the Holodomor then, um, and obviously when it comes to state sponsor of terrorism and any reparations coming. Well, and I, along those lines, I mean, something I do want to do a program about, but I just haven't been able to find the right experts on it, is what is going on with these filtration camps and this kidnapping of Ukrainian citizens, particularly Ukrainian children, who are being brought to Russia and, quote unquote, re-educated. This is an aspect of the war that's not received nearly enough attention. It fits into the whole 
genocide uh, rubric in, in a lot of ways. And I really want to want to do a program on that going forward. If you could think of anybody who's, who could uh, could speak to that. We're bumping up against the end. Marta, last word goes to you. I applaud you for this program. I think that there's never been a time like the present where people are ready to consider the whole of the more in the context, the broader context of the history of Russian-Ukrainian relations. And I also urge people if they want to educate themselves a little bit more, it's really hair-raising if you look at what goes on on Russian TV. That, oh. that uh, An account that I particularly recommend is Julia Davis. Yes. And the, the clips you can watch with subtitles. What the Russian public is seeing every day, I, I don't think it gets publicity because maybe it's so extreme that you could almost find it funny, except that mm -hmm. this is this is a discourse that's out there. If you have any doubt that there, it, it's terrorism and genocide, you have to see what it is that it, that passes for normal on Russian TV to call for Ukrainian cities to be raised from this earth, to freeze the population, to uh, turn off their water, uh, to have them. One, one of the experts the other day was saying, you know, old people and children will die, but their plan is they think that the Ukrainian people will be begging their government to make concessions, give away territory, basically. And it, it doesn't work that way. But they called openly for genocidal methods yep. to have Ukraine come to a bargaining table. And it's it's shocking. I don't think most people realize it. Yeah, no, and uh, Julia Davis's feed is just absolutely fantastic. She watches Russian media, so we don't have to. Um, and it's yeah, she puts some of the the most shocking. And I'll actually include that in the in in the show notes as well. And that that brings us up pretty much to the end. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s DuPont Circle neighborhood has been Michael Salakou. Executive Vice President and Director of the Ukrainian National Information Service, Vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and President of the U.S. Holodor Committee. And joining us from the wonderful city of Toronto, Canada, has been Marta Bazuki, Executive Director of the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium. Thank you to both of you for making us all a lot smarter. Well, Brian, in case I didn't mention it before, uh, that... The Holodomor Research Education Consortium is a project of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of, at the University of Alberta. I will put that in the show notes as well. Um, also, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Leavitt is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in Real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. Thank you.